0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybetemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program.
1: Thank you very much, Rabbi Lewitz. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really an honor to be on the guest of the Valley Beit Midrash. You have so many stellar uh, guests coming, so I really appreciate the opportunity. So tonight we're going to be talking about something as mundane as your vehicle. Have any of you, this is where we're going to start, have any of you driven a vehicle that can go above 100 miles an hour? (laughs) Have any of you actually driven your car over a hundred miles an hour. Yeah, Gerald, yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) But most, so what's interesting here is that you have underneath your feet a car that can do things that you don't take it to do. Any of you know what this is? Um, So, what does the 100M mean? It's water resistant to 100 meters. Any of you scuba divers? No.
2: Not often often enough to go
1: to 100 meters. No. Uh, In fact, nobody can go to 100 meters because even if you are maximally certified, the deepest that you can go is 40 meters. In other words, you would have to cut off your wrist for this watch to actually get to 100 meters. (laughs) So again, what we've done is we've taken technology, awesome technology, And we put it underneath our feet, we put it on our wrists, and we put it into our pockets. Things that can do amazing, soft, Uh, amazing things that we don't do it with. In other words, we make the excessive mundane. We also do the obverse. We take the mundane and make it excessive. What is this? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. It is a rare relic. An ancient piece of technology, but I bet you don't know about this. This is called, uh, what? oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on the name of it, um, extreme ironing. That's what this sport is. It's coming to the uh, Tokyo Olympics next year. Yes, they are skydiving and ironing. Indeed. So we make the mundane excessive. This is the culture that we live in, where we do weird things all the time and we try and make them exciting or we dumb them down and make it very boring. We do that also with food. Take the humble squash, a.k.a. pumpkin. We make them pretty and beautiful and exquisite. We make them small. so small that we will carve them out and get in them and paddle around the lakes of Wisconsin in food. This is food, guys. Food. We also do that not only with plants, but with the humble hot dog. Starting in just a few weeks, there will be events that are going to lead up to the July 4th Nathan's hot dog eating competition Uh, At Coney Island, where we will watch competitors literally stuff their mouths full so that, as it says in the Bible, the quail is still stuck in their teeth. And we will watch them, we will cheer them, and we will even give them medals and uh, statues, and we will put them into the major league of eaters, who are the best competitive eaters in the world, the most amazing world eating records possible. These are champions. These are warriors. These are weapons of mass digestion. Please note the corporate sponsor on the top right. This is Major League Eaters. You too can be a member. Some of you might remember what this is. It is a small bag of popcorn. Do you remember those? Yes? And that was the only size that you could get of popcorn. However, today, you can't get a small bag of popcorn. You get a bathtub of popcorn when you go to the movies. Any of you eaten your, to the bottom of one of those things? Yes? All right. At least one person is honest in here. Right. So if any of you have eaten to the bottom of one of these things, what you have done any one of these things, including the the smallest one, what you have done is you have eaten according to what somebody else tells you you ought to eat. That is called the unit size. Who said that this is the right amount of water that you ought to drink? Why is it that this is, where is it, one serving? Why is it that 500 milliliters is defined as one unit? And you are tuned, you are trained to eat according to the unit that you are served, whether it's at a restaurant, whether it's at the movie theaters, whether it's from the vending machine. And we have seen this from my friends just down the street from Emory University, the CDC, has shown that the average hamburger has tripled in size, from just under four ounces to 12 ounces. The average French fries has also tripled in size, while our sugary drinks have multiplied by six times, the average size. The average size of the consumers in the 1950s has also now ballooned to the proportions that we see running around the United States today. Excuse me, waddling around the United States today. (laughs) That is because here in the United States, we have made the mundane food excessive, And we have trained ourselves to eat according to the units that are served to us by our restaurants, by our grocery stores, by many other things, including events. Just a few months ago in Atlanta, we hosted the Super Bowl. On Super Bowl Sunday, Americans eat 1.8 billion chicken wings. In a year, we eat 9 billion chicken wings. So I can't do the math. 1.8 over 9, but it's about 20%. We eat 20% of the annual budget of chicken wings on one day in the United States. How many turkeys are eviscerated for Thanksgiving? Why is it turkey? Fourth of July. Also, a lot of hamburgers consumed on Fourth of July. We have a holiday coming up, Pesach. There's going to be a lot of gefilte fish. Why is it that we have a lot of brisket and gefilte fish on these particular holidays? In other words, we're trained to eat certain things by the events of our calendar. We're also trained to eat certain things because of the convenience. It is impossible to go down, what's this, McDonald's? Uh, And it's impossible to go down Tate without passing super convenience stores and restaurants with to-go containers. Our government is telling us our regular daily allowance of certain ingredients. They don't know me. They don't know you. They're just talking about a generic population and what the government thinks for a generic population, what they ought to be consuming. In other words, the government is telling us how much to eat and what. Our society tells us to eat frequently. Heck, you can't even go across the hallway here without being told to eat in this synagogue. I'm not (laughs) faulting it, I'm just observing, all right? And of course, here in the United States, we have constructed a variety of ingenious mechanisms to make it possible so that certain food stuff is really cheap and other food stuff is not so cheap. It is cheaper in many places to get a bottle of sugary water than it is to get an orange. Whereas that orange has just as much sugar But it's also got all the fructose and the fiber and everything else, all the good nutrients. But it's a lot more expensive than empty calories of the sugary water. All of this, if you combine it all together, we are being trained to eat according to external cues here in North America. And we are exporting this diet around the world. We're being trained to eat by things outside of our minds, outside of our bodies. And this constitutes what I call the standard American diet. It's sad. Because if you look at the top 10 killers in the United States in the last year, yep, you got it. The vast majority are related to eating and drinking maladaptively. The vast majority. We are literally eating ourselves to death and we don't need to eat that way. So I used the phrase just now, maladaptive eating. It sounds kind of quasi-scientific, and it kind of is. What is it? Well, it is eating that is not confined to metabolic need. Your body has metabolic needs in order for it to maintain itself. If you're not metabolizing, you ain't living. And this is true at the cellular level, and it's true at the organ level, it's true at the organism level you got to be metabolizing, taking stuff in and pooping stuff out. Every cell in your body is doing it all the time, and that's what you do as a collective whole as well. So eating not confined by metabolic need is what constitutes maladaptive eating. And there are at least a couple of different features of what maladaptive eating looks like. You can eat bad stuff. In other words, the quality of the food that you eat. If you eat only Twinkies, that would be maladaptive eating. If you eat 500 pounds of chicken wings every single day, that would also be maladaptive eating. Or if you eat too frequently or too infrequently, that could also be maladaptive for your body. And many of us fixate on this notion of being too little or too much on any one of these issues. Uh, especially when it comes to quantity, on the, if you eat too much, we call it gluttony, and if you eat too little, it it is a deprivation kind of eating strategy. Our challenge is to figure out how to eat in a realm that's called just right. And we'll get back to just right in just a few minutes. But let's start 500 years ago. Peter van de Hayden has a woodcut called The Hungry Kitchen, La Cuisine Maigre. What do you see going on in this picture? This is not a rhetorical question. You must participate. There will be a quiz on this. So what's going on here? What is it that they're eating here? Oysters. Oysters and clams. Why? Because Antwerp was a port town, and that was the fare of the impoverished of that time period. What else? What else do you see? I there's, only one cat person. Yeah. The, there's a fairly rotund individual up here. What's what's going on with this individual? Are they pushing
2: him out, or he looks like he's welcoming, he's
1: welcoming him in? He's and and what, what what does this individual want to do? Come is he trying to go in, or is he trying to come out? I, I don't know. It's kind of. It's kind of ambiguous, right? It's, we're not exactly sure what's going on. Why might that person not want to enter into this kitchen? There's not enough of the food that he wants to eat to go around. Uh huh. Why else might he not want to enter this particular kitchen at this time? It's too the, full. There's too many people already. Okay. Oh, he's, too, oh, he's too, full. too full. He's already fed and he's had enough. All right. They might resent him. Okay. Cannibalized exactly <laughs> they look really hungry indeed in fact do any of these guys look healthy no. no does does this mother who's trying to feed her baby look healthy does the whelp with her pups look healthy down there no they look emaciated exactly are any of them looking at each other having a nice calm conversation about you know politics of the day They they look quite desperate, indeed. Is there any food in the larder above the fireplace over here in the pantry? No. It looks really hungry. It seems that what Peter van der Heiden is trying to suggest here is that if you eat chronically too little, not only are you deprived of food and depriving your body of food, but you also become depraved. There's very little civility going on in this scene here. Now look at the obverse. The fat kitchen. What do you see going on? Oh yes, I forgot. Uh, take a note of the bagpipe, and now take a note of the bagpipe. So what kind of hospitality is going on over here? Yes. <laughs> He's being kicked and bit. Such a nice little dog. What else do you notice going on here? Why would you use that term? Because they,
2: like, they obviously have plenty to eat and they're eating, they're all eating too much. too much and there's big piles
1: of it. So there's big piles, indeed. There's so much food on this table, it's literally falling off. And do you notice this guy's necklace of hot dogs? Sausages? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah? They're eating off the floor. At least. The, the children are eating off the floor, indeed. This woman who's breastfeeding her children, the baby can barely sit on her lap. This dog can barely waddle. Look at the cat lapping up, the, the large that's dripping off. They're not socializing. They are not socializing either. In other words, if you eat gluttonously, chronically, it, you will become as depraved as you would if you were to eat a deprivational diet chronically. As an aside note on animal obesity, have any of you ever met or seen or heard of an obese giraffe in the wild? Yeah, no, they don't exist. Animal obesity in the wild is a myth. There ain't no such thing. Animal obesity exists to the degree that the animals are proximal to human civilization. So that is why our pets are suffering The the exact kinds of um, metabolic disorders that we are suffering because we are feeding them from our tables. And that is why um, city-dwelling animals as well also suffer metabolic disorders because they're eating our scraps. But you And zoo animals as well. But you will never meet an obese animal in the wild. Not only are we killing ourselves, we're killing everything else that's around us. And a similar argument obviously can be made about the environmental impacts of this um, standard American diet. So let's turn to another picture. Who knows who this is?
2: Little Miss (laughs) Muppet?
1: No? You all know who she is. Yes, you do. It is Goldilocks, indeed. Goldilocks was first composed in 1835 in Britain. <coughs> it was a sh- short story written by an aunt for her nephew's birthday. Uh, and then it got told and retold and retold. At first, it wasn't a little, old, little girl at all with golden hair. It was a curmudgeonly old woman with silver hair. Uh, and she was a cranky old lady uh, who really did not like her neighbors whatsoever, the, those bears. Uh, but after decades and decades, by the turn of the 20th century, she had mutated into a tiny, young, golden-haired girl. And Disney picked it up. And thankfully, we now know her for being Goldilocks instead of silver hair. But we all know the story. And this story, this part of the story has remained more or less the same. She goes wandering in the woods behind her house. And she finds uh, the doors open. She wanders in. And lo and behold, there's a table with three bowls of porridge. So if she were truly the American, that she is, which bowl would she eat? That's right, you all pass, exactly. But we all know that Goldilocks does not eat that, so she cannot be an American. If she were a philosopher of the Aristotelian sort, who really said that we should be temperate, don't be at the extremes, find the golden mean, which one would she eat? The middle one, exactly. But does she like that one? No, it's too tepid. It is not hers. So she is not a philosopher eater. Instead, what does she do? She eats of the littlest one because it is just right. Now, how did she know it was just right? Well, she's obviously not eating according to external cues, it's free, it's the biggest. It's available, it's convenient. She's obviously not eating to philosophical guidelines of what the virtuous eater ought to eat. But no, she's eating not according to external cues or to her mind, but to her body. She is eating according to internal cues. And we'll unpack what internal cues are in just a minute. There is in the, there's an academic field called food studies. And that this field of food studies is now, we can now begin to discern a variety of different genres within this field of food studies. There's what I call food ethics and dietetics. In food ethics, you've probably seen these uh, pieces out there in the popular press. They look at everything from farm to fork from transporting, manufacturing, packaging, and getting that food into your restaurants. They talk about food deserts and swamps and things like that. All of that is what I call food ethics. And they're very much concerned about how you exercise your dollars. In dietetics, there are two major camps. There's the descriptive kind of dietetics, where they look at history. What did Jewish Americans eat at the turn of the 20th century? There's a book on that, actually, comparing what Jews, Irish, and Italians all ate at the turn of the 20th century. Or they might look at a certain authority. What did Moses Maimonides have to say in the 12th century about what we ought to eat? Or certain ingredients. Ah, the kale. The kale diet. That's what we all got to eat. Or it might be a certain regimen. Ah, VB6. Vegan before 6 o'clock, says Michael Pollan. That should be the diet that you should have. And these are all descriptive, um, especially if they're historically oriented. There's prescriptive, that's where the VB6 comes in, um, or the, the, that, are obvious, that are primarily celebrate, uh, promoted by celebrities. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, when did she become a dietician? Um, it might have a modicum of science, uh, like, say, um, uh, the, the South Beach diet. Maybe there's a shred of science in there. But more often than not, um, the prescriptive diets, these fads that come up every now and then, the palm diet, there's very little science to them. Uh, But this is the prescriptive kind of dietetics. These are descriptive. So if food ethics is more interested in how you exercise your dollars, dietetics is more interested in whether you comport with the, the identity that is being Described or um, the identity that their the allegiance that you have to say uh, Oprah's diet or um, Weight Watchers or something like that. But all of them are more or less interested in your kitchen practices, your culinary practices. They're not interested in you as you. They're interested in the generic American population. They're not interested in you per se. And so I suggest that what we need to do is create a whole field called eating ethics, hence my book uh, and this talk, which is trying to reclaim what it means for you to be an eater and how to eat according to your internal cues. And so eating ethics takes me, the eater, seriously. You are not me. So why? And I am not you. So why should either one of us tell the other one what to eat or how to eat? When to eat. I want each of us to reclaim what it means to be an eater of this world, what the eaten is. Because what the eaten is changes in your lifetime. Any of you still uh, breastfeed? (laughs) Yeah, so what was food is no longer food in your life. And what is food probably wasn't what you used to eat a couple of decades ago. And what is this verb, this relationship that you actually have with food, eating itself? It is a relationship. And so that is what this book unpacks. And I do so by looking at religious textual traditions. And one of the textual traditions that I love is Judaism. And so many of you know that the book uh, that founds the Jewish tradition is the Bible. And it opens up with A creation story. Not just one, but two creation stories, right? I suggest perhaps that there are a couple of other creation stories, but that's a different story. But let's begin with the first two. Creation 1 and creation 2. Creation 1 goes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 4a, the first part of verse 4a. Creation 2 goes from chapter 2, verse 4b, the second part of that sentence, all the way down to approximately the end of chapter 5 or so. But typically, most people call it chapter 2 and 3 of Genesis. The primordial responsibility of human beings in the first creation story is to procreate. It's not a command, folks. Whoever says it's a command, they're not reading the text. It is not a command. Over here in creation two, their primordial responsibility is to tend and till the soil and to be stewards of the garden. That's their primordial responsibility. And God acknowledges in both of these stories that, oh, in order to fulfill these responsibilities, you got to eat. You guys are eaters, you Homo sapiens. So what does God do? God then supplies that which these Homo sapiens need to eat. If you have read the text, in chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, they talk about all the amazing seedy things that you can eat. In fact, not only are all human beings supposed to eat this stuff, but so are all the other animals. The lions are really happy now that they're vegan. <laughs> in creation 2, you're allowed to eat certain seedy things. What are the exceptions? Okay. Correct. What happens if you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? There are going to be, there are consequences. Indeed, there are not just consequences, there are lethal consequences if you transgress the limitation that God has put on your eating of those certain seedy things. Go ahead and eat all of the things in the Garden of Eden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is no such limitation in Genesis chapter 1 You are permitted to eat ad libitum, which which means with liberty, or ad nauseum, until you throw up, according to Genesis chapter 1. There ain't no consequences for that kind of unrestricted consumption. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever eaten until you've made yourself sick, but imagine doing that chronically. There's probably trouble ahead if you eat according to Genesis chapter one. This one at least makes biological sense, if not theological sense. And so each of these stories now has each of the ingredients of eating ethics. There's the eater, the food that you eat, and the relationship that you have between the eater and the eaten, which is eating itself. So what I am proposing in my book is actually a Judaic vision of the world. Our Bible also says that not only should you eat carefully, you should then share. What does Eve do in the Garden of Eden? She takes a bite of that fruit, whatever it might be, and she gives it immediately to her husband. She shares. In the book of Exodus, which we are going to read in just a few weeks at our Pesach Seders, it teaches us that you should have a Paschal lamb and you should share it among everybody in your household. If you are sharing, that means that you yourself are eating only a portion of that thing that is in front of you. And it says that when Noah was about to step into the ark, he had to go out there and be a zoologist and figure out what is it that giraffes eat? What is it that lions eat? What is it that cicadas eat? And gather up enough of it and store it Hopefully he had a big refrigerator. Because what would happen if he didn't do good study of nature and get the right food stuff for each of those animals and feed them appropriately for however long he was in the ark? What would happen to him and his family? It'd be a bloody mess, right? He wouldn't get out of the ark alive. So he has to be really careful about rationing food even to the natural with the more than human world. And if you are rationing, that means that each eater needs to eat in moderation, not a ration, right? And we see this actually in, uh, promulgated by Joshua to all of the Israelites just about, just moments before they are to cross the Jordan River and take over the land of Israel. Joshua tells everybody, get your rations together. Get your provisions ready so that you can eat in moderation while you are going to conquer the land. So, if we are to share, to, be, to eat our rations and eat in moderation, how does that link up with internal cues? So the prophet Elijah, as you well know, does not die in the biblical corpus, and so that allows the rabbis to imagine he comes back periodically. Say once a week for Havdalah, Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu. So he also comes up at Pesach. Pesach. He comes at Brisses. He comes at many different occasions. He also has conversations with the rabbis from time to time. So this is from the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Gittin. He's having a conversation with Rabbi Nathan. And he teaches Rabbi Nathan, Dude, when you eat, eat a third, drink a third, retain a third. For when you become angry, you'll be filled to
0: your capacity. What does that mean? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Does it mean
1: about the plate? Whatever you put on your plate, eat a third however much is in your glass, drink a third, and leave a third for tomorrow's breakfast, which is actually the recommendation in a new book called What to Eat When, very interesting book. Well, it could be, or it could very well be in reference not to the external world, but to the internal world, because Rashi, the 11th century French commentator, comes along and he says on the phrase for when you become angry, he says, anger fills your belly to your capacity. So if you fill your, fill your innards with food and drink, when you become angry, you will split asunder. <laughs> we can laugh today, but why does it make sense for Rashi? Rashi. Why do you think it makes sense in his worldview, that if you fill yourself with innards, you fill your innards, your stomach, with food and drink, with biology, you have no room left for your emotional life. Remember the worldview of when he lived. He lived in the Galenic worldview. Galen, like Hippocrates, was this ancient Greek ph- uh, physician. And he promoted this idea of the four humors. Do you remember the four humors? And your emotions were the slishing and sloshing of the biological material of those four humors. And if you were angry, your phlegm was really high, and your bile was really low, or whatever it was. In in any case, it was a biological reality in their worldview of your inner emotional life. And you needed to have time and space for you to metabolize your biological reality, your emotional life. And so if you fill yourself with biology, with food and drink, you have no room for biography, for your emotional life. Any of you ever wheezed your way from the Thanksgiving table to the couch and said, don't talk to me? Don't get me upset? I don't want to think, I don't want to feel, I don't want to get angry. It's because you're too busy metabolizing your biology, you have no room for your emotional life. This makes sense in their worldview. I think it also makes sense in our reality today. Now, he wasn't the only one, Elijah, to teach this. Maimonides comes along and teaches it as well although he thinks that the proportions are a little bit different. He thinks that we're allowed to eat up to three-fourths of our belly rather than two-thirds. But this teaching is also not found only in the Jewish textual tradition. We also find it in the Islamic textual tradition, where they teach that, frankly, you should eat even more restrictive, only up to half of your stomach. But regardless of which tradition you hold on to, they all share the same picture, which is go ahead and eat, have your dinner, have your salad, have your soup, have your cake. Go ahead. But don't fill your belly. Eat less than what you bodily can. That is what these ancient religious traditions have to teach us. And these are 1,400, 1,000 years old. What is so fascinating to me, is the cutting-edge science of nutrition, of satiety, which is how you become sated and satisfied by food, the cutting-edge science on nutrition and on metabolism, they all agree, bless you, Thank you, with this ancient wisdom. Cutting-edge science is telling us today that the healthiest way to eat is to chronically eat less than what you bodily can. That is not saying never have a feast. That is not saying only fast. On the contrary, it's saying go ahead, eat, and then refrain from stuffing yourself in any uh, regular fashion. The best synopsis of this teaching I found in this story by al-Ghazali, who is a uh, sort of like Moses Maimonides, but for the Islamic tradition, 12th century Persian um, a theologian. He told this story of a competition of four physicians who were brought together. And the competition was that each one of them needed to describe a medicine which itself results in no sickness. Anybody a doctor in here? Yeah? You all know that medicine or pharmacia, pharmacopeia, literally means to, uh, it's a toxin that's meant to make you sick to cure one thing, but it makes you sick uh, in other ways. So the Indian suggested that it was Black Then The Iraqi physician thought it was Nasturtium Cress, where the Greek thought it was hot water. Each one of these, they argued, was a medicine that had no negative side effects. It would not make you sick. However, the Sawadi took down each one and showed how each one of them had bad side effects. And he said that the only medicine which contains no sick side effects consists in refraining from food until one has an appetite and ceasing to eat when one is not yet full. And that, in other words, you should only eat when you are actually hungry. So refrain from eating until you actually have an appetite. Resist snacking. We are taught to snack in this culture all the time. And when you are actually in your meal, we are taught by this ancient religious traditions, both from Judaism and Islam, as well as contemporary cutting edge science, to stop eating even before you get full. And to try practicing a phrase. Thanks, I've had enough. Many of us have said the phrase, I'm stuffed, I'm full, put a fork in me, I'm done. That is reifying, reinscribing this notion of eating until you are actually all the way full. What's interesting about satiation and satiety, these are two verbs, uh, two kinds of satiety. Here at the beginning of a meal, your hunger should be up here. Your fullness is down here. And then as you go through the meal, you're eating, you're eating, you're eating, your hunger depletes, your fullness increase, and at some point they cross. And yet here in America, we're taught to keep on eating, even though our hunger is now below our fullness line. And we keep on eating, we keep on eating, and we keep on snacking post the meal. And that's where I think our religious traditions are trying to teach us something very wise, which is once those two curves have met, Put your fork down. You've had enough in that one meal. But again, this isn't trying to say don't ever feast. It's just don't feast at every single meal. And so this is the story that I tell. And there's a lot more there in this, uh, in this book. And I welcome questions, comments, stomach aches, <laughs> nausea. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think this will probably appear in your book. But i just got to
2: point out, same teaching in Christianity. It's more pronounced in the Eastern Church, but almost exactly
1: the same. So one of the great stories in the Christian tradition is uh, the story of uh, Jesus feeding 5,000 followers at the Sea of Galilee. What's so fascinating from a biblical um, religious studies perspective is that the prophet Elisha did something very similar several centuries beforehand, uh, feeding 3,000. Um, so the parallels are um, undeniable. Elisha had so many loaves of bread, so did Jesus, 3,000, 5,000, etc. So Jesus is following in good footsteps. But what's so remarkable here is that the Christian tradition, from my understanding, uh, really celebrates the miracle of distributing five loaves of bread and uh, four fish, or whatever it is. How many? Two two fish and five loaves of bread, something like that. Meager fare among 5,000. And many uh, of the interpretations that I have read of that famous story is the miracle of uh, him being able to distribute such small fare to 5,000. For me, that's not the miracle. The miracle is that no matter how much the people were given, even if it was just a crumb, they ate less than that, because the disciples went around and collected whatever was remaining, and there was enough to fill 12 more plates for all of the disciples. So the 5,000 people ate less than what they were given. Jesus gave them a unit, and they did not eat the unit. They ate less than what they bodily could. And that is how civilization is engendered, is through sharing our food. And I also talk about evolutionary anthropology in the book as well. Humans evolved around campfires. Yeah. That's how we got our big brains, in part, is by learning how to tell stories around campfires, around the kitchen table. And, that, uh, and so it's part and parcel of uh, how we become human.
0: It's uh, interesting to note that in the Garden of Eden story, when they eat from the Aids had got to wrap, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, essentially it's the first act of food consumption that gives birth to the moral consciousness right so actually in eating that that whole awareness is even born so i wonder i wonder um we have very developed fields of medical ethics as you know and business ethics and the like it makes sense why the ethics of technology is a relatively new field but why is food ethics so underdeveloped and what do you see happening in that field now
1: that's a good question. Why is food ethics underdeveloped comparatively? Well, one is that we all like what our parents served us to eat. Uh, and <laughs> therefore, we are quite, <coughs> maybe there are some exceptions. Um, but <clears throat> uh, it's really hard to change people's palate, palate preferences. Uh, it's, it's really hard. Um, and so we are resistant, conservative, small c, uh, to adjust our diets. It's that's not to say it's impossible. It's just challenging. Uh, so there's already from the individual perspective resistance to think deeply about food. Uh, and then uh, from an academic perspective, there's been, a um, a suppression of this field because, uh, big industry is quite reluctant to show its dirty laundry. Um, we've seen this in many States. Uh, you'd, have, have many of you heard about ag-gag laws? Ag-gag laws are agricultural gagging laws, which makes it illegal for investigative journalists to go into certain kinds of industries, like abattoirs uh, and um, confined uh, animal feeding operations uh, to do investigative journalism. They will be arrested for trying to uh, publicize the truth about what's going on in these industries. And so uh, this pressure keeps the lid on discerning what is going on in our food system. Uh, And so it's difficult for us to know what are the facts, (coughs) much less what can we do to change our feeding system so that we're not killing ourselves in it. I think there's increasing pressure, societally. I think many of us are aware, awakening ourselves to the fact that, society-wise, we're eating ourselves to death. Um, Many of us don't feel good. And we want to understand why is it that our food, uh, that we no longer feel as good as we used to. Why is it that our apples no longer taste as apple as they used to? They've got that crunch, but they don't taste great. Um, so they've been modified in some way or another. So it depends. If you have the the financial wherewithal to gain access to certain kinds of foodstuffs. that's fantastic. But then we've got distributive justice issues as well. And people are awakening themselves to these issues about who has access to... To food and certain kinds of food, quality foods. So I think there's a bubbling up in the last couple of decades. The slow food movement is uh, burgeoning, um, the call for transparency. We have increasing distrust uh, of the healthcare system, of the food delivery system. Uh, and all of these, I think, are combining uh, in many pockets around the North America uh, for an emergence of food studies and what I'm trying to do at Emory is build something out called a food studies and ethics program because no matter what angle you look at food, whether it's personal health, public health, law, religion, philosophy, psychology, environmental science, farming, whatever angle, there's always ethics being brought to to play. Every time that you eat, every time you take a sip of that water, ma'am, it's an ethical exercise and we need to awaken ourselves to the ethics involved
2: your thoughts on uh, of all the people that don't have enough to eat and like all the children that you have to eat at school and just the people that you pass you know,
1: that don't have food? Correct. Uh, so there are a lot of people that don't have access uh, to healthy foods. It's not that we don't, uh, that globally speaking, there isn't enough food to, to be distributed. There certainly is. It's a question of will. It's not a question of if. Um, there's ne- uh, purposeful negligence going on, uh, globally speaking. Um, food is being sent to in famined areas, uh, but it sits on docks or at airports without being uh, properly distributed, and so it rots. So it's a question of political will in many circumstances. Here in the United States, uh, we have been notorious of uh, feeding our children pink slime uh, in our schools. What? Uh, pink slime, it's uh, w- what, you, what they call is meat. But it's basically um, discarded meat stuff, scraps, uh, that is then ground up and put with some uh, food coloring. And then it's being uh, shipped off to our school systems and served to our children. Um, And it's being touted as uh, legitimate food. Um, You probably all remember President Reagan, who said that ketchup is a legitimate vegetable. So we've got... People in positions of power uh, who make decisions and policies that are detrimental to the health of our most vulnerable. And so, again, that is an exercise of ethics. Who are, as a, I, I don't need to unpack that about, you know, a society is evaluated by the, the degree to which it cares for its most vulnerable. Um, but for me, it, it's not a question of. If there's enough food, we certainly are producing plenty of food. The question is distributing it in a fair, equitable, and efficient manner. And these are easy things to, to solve if people would only let their egos allow themselves to solve it.
2: It's a matter of economics, or politics, or proximity to
1: food? So uh, th- there are many of those features, absolutely, about how we distribute food, um, but let's take Let's take uh, retailing of food. Grocery markets, for example. Um, Have any of you been to India? Yes. So do you remember walking down the streets in India and on basically every street corner there's somebody with a cart selling bananas and tomatoes, cucumbers, fresh fruits and vegetables and herbs? That is a an inefficient but effective way of getting fresh fruits and vegetables to the population. Here in Phoenix, you have to drive quite a few blocks or miles to go to a grocery store. That That is an efficient way of getting fruits and vegetables distributed nationally, but not effective to getting it to every single home. So there are different ways of distributing food nationally, that could be done differently here in the United States. We have championed for the last 100, 150 years, we've championed efficiency over effectiveness. And it's perhaps time for us to reevaluate that balance on getting foodstuffs out there. Then we've got the price incentives. Why is it that the farm bill incentivizes monocropping, commodity crops? Um, why, is it giving, why are we giving huge subsidies to animal farmers when we all know that that is a hyper-inefficient um, way of getting calories and nutrients into human bodies? Why should you pump nine times the amount of calories and water into an animal to get <coughs> those calories, one unit of calories, into a human being? so inefficient. Go directly from plants. Take out the middle creature. It, it's just pure math.
2: Well, that's what vegans say?
1: <laughs> there are many reasons to, to decrease meat consumption. Not only is it uh, ethical reasons, there's environmental reasons, there's economic reasons, there's the animal suffering reasons, there's also the human suffering reasons. Um, Rabbi yanklowitz has a Heksher um, that is trying to promote a wholesome ethics when, when you buy a piece of food that you know that the laborers are being paid a fair wage, that they're actually protected from unnecessary harms in, in the abattoirs. That's an important thing to think about when you are buying hectured food. Yeah?
2: Um, you're, you were mentioning about internal cues. What do you think about like our if you're if you're kind of in touch with what you're eating and you're not like super you know sugar and fat sort of thing but your body tells you like different things that you want to eat and sometimes it's a different something you didn't normally eat but there's this um internal message is coming like that you need to eat something and Mm-hmm. Have you done some research on that, or what do you think
1: about that? So, absolutely. Um, I, I'm not Michael Phelps, uh, and I don't pretend to be, so I shouldn't eat like him. He eats 6,000 calories a day. Um, that would be maladaptive eating if I were to eat that way. Um, I'm a runner, and there are some times when I run, after which I really want to eat Carbohydrates. I feel the need, the urge to eat carbohydrates. So I allow myself to eat those carbohydrates. And then I make sure that when my body is no longer recovering from a long run, that I don't gorge myself on carbohydrates. Uh, Human bodies have evolved so that over millennia, to eat a diverse range of proteins, a diverse range of plants, and this is true also for your particular body. At any particular time in the day, you should be eating according to what your body needs. More proteins in the morning, and more carbohydrates in the morning, and fewer as the day progresses. Your dinner should be your smallest meal, because biologically, your body changes its metabolism cycle after dark. And so you should be decreasing your kind, those kinds of um, nutrients in your body after dark. But you need that energy boost, slow, uh, slow digesting proteins and carbs in the early morning so that it can be a slow burn during the day. So lunch, uh, breakfast and lunch are your two most important meals more than dinner. That's not to say dinner's not important. It's very important socially. But it doesn't need to be the biggest meal in your day biologically. So paying attention to these things is really important. Another thing about internal cues, um, it takes about 20 minutes for your belly to send the hormonal signals to your brain saying, I've had enough. Uh, So instead of waiting those 20 minutes, uh, you can feel your belly distending. It's like a balloon. It distends, extends three-dimensionally in your body. Uh, And you can feel it begin to distend if you actually slow down, put your fork down between bites. These are simple strategies. Um, you can feel it distend. And when it does, that's when you probably reach that curve where your hunger and your fullness have reached that magic moment for that particular meal. Another strategy that we use in our house um, is instead of putting food on the kitchen table, where we're all going to eat until the bottom of the, uh, of the bowl, uh, of, the, of the serving bowl, is we put the food up on the counter. So that if you want seconds, you have to literally get up and go and pick it up seconds. And over time, what I have seen, we've been practicing this just for the last three or four months, I've seen that our tendency to take seconds and thirds has reduced over, time, over the aggregate. Um, as my sons reach puberty, I'm sure that's going to <laughs> reverse that order. But at least for my wife and me, we're, we're slowly reducing our impulse to have seconds and thirds and fourths. Yeah.
2: Okay, so how about the cruel uh, nature of craving mm. things that are bad for us? That's yeah. What, if we're going to talk about um, our body will tell us, Yeah. then why is it that if you eat two potato chips, now yeah. you're going to eat a whole bag? Yeah, so, so... Why does our body make us crave things? It,
1: bad? That, that's a really good question. So um, our bodies are designed for three major macronutrients. Fats sugars, and salts. And you have to have each of those things, a baseline. If you don't have enough fats and proteins, you're not gonna ha- if you don't have enough amino acids running around, you're not going to have enough energy to do what you need to do. Similarly with sugars, you need to have carbohydrates. Your body converts those things for short t- short-term burn. Um, so you need to have enough sugars in your diet. And salts, if you don't have salt in your diet, your neural system is going to break down. Your brain is not going to be able to communicate with your nerves, and you're going to literally fall apart. So you got to have at least a baseline of those three. What's happened with food science is that they've created Doritos, (laughs) which are packed with fat, sugar, and salt. They are hyper-palatable. A lot of the food stuff that is manufactured today is hyper palatable. That's the technical term. And so what I teach my students in my course called Eating Ethics is don't go down the aisles of a grocery store. Go around the grocery store, because that's where you're going to get the fresh stuff. Buy as much stuff without a barcode as you can. Because the stuff with the barcode has been manufactured. Anything that's been manufactured is already predisposed to being hyper-palatable. That's the presumption that I have with anything with a barcode. Uh, And so hyper-palatable stuff tastes good. It looks good. It smells good. It crunches well. Great texture. Great temperature. Yum! I want to eat that whole Pringles can. And yes, I do from time to time. But the challenge is to train your palate to enjoy that apple instead. The apple is also hyperpalatable, if you allow it to be. <laughs> it's got that great crisp, great texture, great taste and smells, etc. Um, on, on that point, on potato chips, uh, com, uh, potato chip companies uh, have spent thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of dollars toning Potato chips. Uh, What they do is they put earmuffs on eaters. And they can change the dryness of a potato chip. And that will change how it sounds in your inner ear. If you've ever plugged your ears while you chew, you'll notice that it's really loud. I wish that I had something here for you to chew on and you can do that experiment. Just plug your ears the next time uh, that you chew an apple or anything. Uh, It's really loud. And so what they've done is they've changed the dryness of the potato chip, and they can pitch it down or up, depending on how soggy it is or how dry it is. And they found that perfect pitch that really resonates in our inner ear and triggers our brain to think that, hey, wow, this is a fresh-tasting item. So the sound of food is just as addicting as the tastes and the nutrients of our foods as well fascinating food scientists are brilliant and manipulative Manipulative. (laughs) it's really fascinating
2: yeah Um, my father is a scientist and he used to get this subscribe to this large trade magazine that was all uh, food additives and it was just companies selling different chemicals for different kinds of tastes and fats and things and Mm -hmm. i mean this was a long time ago today's standards but I did see, like, Taco Bell or somebody, their latest statement is advertising is food you crave. Yep. And that's, you know, targeting that specifically. It's very much engineered. Um, it's not, nothing natural at all about it. It's totally that,
1: uh, that's correct. Just, you
2: know,
1: that's correct. Now, I, I'm not saying that you sh- should never crave. So, for example, pregnant women often have cravings of certain kinds at certain stages in their pregnancies and these are biologic, there's biological basis for those cravings. Um, what's important is to attend to those cravings and then recognize that those are momentary. One ought not eat the whole five pound thing of ice cream for the rest of your life when you're no longer pregnant. Um, go ahead, satisfy those cravings in the moment and recognize that that's a momentary um, eating strategy that's something else that I try and teach my students and, and I also mentioned it here it's how you used to eat is not how you do eat today and how you do eat today is not how you're going to eat in six months or a year from now you need to not be so ossified in your eating strategies as to not be flexible enough to meet your m- metabolic needs as you mature in age yeah, yeah just, um, regardless, of my, regardless of my Irish
2: background which sees Guinness stout just is-
1: Absolutely, I I agree. I agree. It it is one of the foo- major f- food major groups. Food group. Yes.
2: You know it is written in the Psalms. God gave us wine to make our hearts glad. Do you have anything to say about wine and Guinness and things like
1: that? So, um, uh, alcohol is. Uh, uh, you probably all know this. That alcohol uh, has been around for thousands of years because that was the best way to make water palatable. Um, beer uh, was the best way to. If, you're, if the liquid in front of you is bubbling, then you know that it is uh, purified, that you can drink it. The alcohol will kill all the bad stuff as well as the um, carbonation is also um, an indicator that the water is not putrid. So um, alcohol is an impaired, has We have evolved, co-evolved with alcohol, let's put it that way, for at least the last 20,000, 30,000 years or something like that. Um, especially since the agricultural revolution ten thousand years ago, when we had excess grains, and we wanted to do something with excess grains and keep, uh, and and especially rotting excess grains. So I, uh, so there are good reasons for us to continue to drink alcohol. Um, from an evolutionary perspective, our bodies have now become accustomed to them. Then there's the question of how much, how frequently, what kinds, that. I defer to experts um, on those sorts of things. Our religious traditions say, go ahead, if you're going to drink, have some, but please don't get drunk. We just celebrated Purim. (laughs) Now, what's fascinating about that is that Purim is, like Mardi Gras, um, like Carnival, a springtime festival of excess. So these traditions, these civilizations, allow us a moment of excess. But it's only fun and meaningful because it is the exception in our yearly calendar. If we were to drink ourselves so much that we cannot determine between Haman and Mordecai every single day, Purim would not be special. Similarly with Shabbat. Similarly with Easter, similarly with Eid, these are special holy days and holidays because the other days are not fed or drunk the same way.
2: If you could address uh, how you feel about the kashrut, help us as Jews to be more ethical with our eating compared to those that don't.
1: This is where I would defer to Rabbi Yanklowitz to to help us on the kashrut and ethics side of things. My studies of kashrut thus far um, suggest that it, it, up to the last, say, 20 years or so, um, has been most concerned about how an animal dies rather than how it has lived. It's more concerned about um, uh, what you do in the kitchen with your foodstuffs rather than what you do as an eater. Yes, there are rules and regulations about how long you need to wait after having a fleshic meal before you can have a dairy meal, etc. But it's really not concerned so much about ethics per se. It's about regulation, and those are two different things. A regulatory system is not an ethical uh, system, and vice versa. Um, So, has that ancient system that has been well developed by the rabbis? the, uh, does it have ethical components? I would say it has uh, some components insofar as it um, has inculcated attention to our food. Uh, and that's really important, but it's a part of the story. It's not, it's not sufficient. It's necessary but insufficient. And that's why I think um, we need these Heksher Tzedek. Uh, what's the name of yours? Ours is called Tav Vyosher. Uh, T- Tav Um These new um, Heksharim, which are thinking more about the welfare of the animals as they live, not only how they die. And the farm, uh, the farm workers, the environmental sustainability, the economics of it, etc. Yeah.
2: Um, one of your slides you said about eating and that food should be shared, so there's sort of a community social aspect. And I was wondering, um, urban farming is supposed mm-hmm. to be this have the potential for this huge um, amount of food that can be produced and it brings together communities and the community aspect of it. Um, and I was wondering also like the connection maybe in the founding of Israel and the kibbutzes and how they had to make up food and you know get an economy going, but if there was anything that people learned um, about ways to eat or share or work together that there's some overlap here of, building a community with some of
1: these ideas as a, for our, our whole um, city and going forward. It, it, I, yes. <laughs> 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 it, it start, it's not only what happens around um, the, 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 the micro farm for a family and what happens around a dining room table. Uh, that's where family tales are told and retold. Uh, it's what you do with your next door neighbor as well. You share your feast, um, your barbecue in the afternoon with them. Uh, and that's how bonds are created, of solidarity, and uh, uh, of support in, in neighborhoods. Um, there, there's so much... Uh, and, and then, as you balloon out, cities are doing this as well, uh, creating spaces for community gardens. Um, I, from Atlanta's perspective, we now have things like urban jungle, where they look, they've mapped out where fruiting trees are around the city that are not on any one person's pop property, but on public property or abandoned lots. And they map out when they're fruiting and ripe. And volunteers go and pick all the fruit and take it to food pantries. Um, there are now abandoned plots that are being converted into community farms uh, for the local people who live right around them. Composting is taking off, at least in Atlanta. I hope so here as well. Uh, to, uh, um, to divert. Uh, Americans throw away 40% of our food, by the way. 40% of the food that we grow, purchase, and serve is disposed of, um, and that is considered to be one of the biggest uh, contributors to greenhouse gas emissions um, because if we could capture that 40%, reduce it, that's less energy being pumped up uh, in greenhouse gases. Um, But this idea of uh, farming and and the land and community gardens um, being a a way to create community solidarity is as old as the Bible. You all know uh, the, the biblical injunction to not reap to the edges of your field, but to leave the corners of your field for the orphan, the stranger, and the widow, right? For the disenfranchised, the most marginalized in our communities. Well, how much is a corner? Can you show me? So may yeah, I borrow your sheet of paper, please? So, is is your corner this much, or is it this much? How much is a corner? It, it doesn't say. It does, the Bible doesn't specify. The rabbis have some disagreements about it too. But it's nonetheless, uh, the conversation itself is really important because you're not supposed to reap all the way to the edges because you have to think about other eaters and giving them reasonable access to healthy food. You are responsible for growing that food, making sure it's as healthy as the food that you're going to reap and sell, but you don't have the right to it. How amazing is that? Food justice. It's pretty cool. And I think there's a reclaiming of that conversation going on, Um, not only secularly, but also Jewishly. Uh, The Leishtag Foundation in San Diego is uh, hosting annual conventions of Jewish farmers, uh, and that field is growing, literally and metaphorically.
2: Yeah. Uh, and also, the door-to-door idea that you, you really, we really don't have a right to use up the whole planet for ourselves and leave nothing for the future for our children and our grandchildren, which is a very imminent um, idea
1: right now. It's no longer theoretical, exactly. Uh, And so there's um, so this story here that I could tell with more of an environmental frame rather than sort of a personal consumptive frame um, Has greater urgency when you start looking at it from greenhouse gas emissions equivalents Um, So just because you might be buying organic food that doesn't mean that that organic food is local So it's got a huge gas footprint but what happens if you 're buying not local food but stuff that's far away, say beans from you know Georgia, where I'm from, not that we grow beans, peanuts from Georgia, okay instead of the local organic peanuts, or uh, let me give you a different example um, yeah, pistachios, okay pistachios are a huge water suck
0: and
1: almonds. Are, oodles of water to produce a a pound of of almonds Um, so your greenhouse gas footprint uh, for peanuts might be much less that are from farther away than the local (coughs) pistachios or almonds or something like that so you need to think about the greenhouse gas equivalent of your food source the food stuff if you want to take that seriously and there are increasing Kinds and numbers of communities that are interested in those kinds of conversations. So there is urgency, absolutely. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice uh, if we don't take this stuff seriously. Both individually, your own body, your body has biological needs, but also communally. And what it doesn't mean if Temple Solel doesn't reassess or doesn't take its food purchasing policy and serving practices seriously. What does it mean if Valley Beit Midrash doesn't take its food purchasing practices seriously? I assume that it does. Uh, But um, I think that our Jewish institutions really should be leading the way. And there are many organizations to help these institutions rethink their food purchasing policies. One organization, I know I'm rambling, but one organization is Farm Forward. Uh, They have something called the Jewish Initiative for Animals which is designed to help Jewish institutions, synagogues, JCCs, camps, schools, rethink about how and why they feed themselves the way that they do.
2: Farm Forward is doing an online presentation for everybody. I think it's next Tuesday or something. Mm-hmm. Just go and look it up. Yeah,
1: uh, so they partner with Jonathan Safran Foer, yeah. uh, who wrote the book Eating Animals. Uh, and the video, that, the documentary that came out last year is pretty good at on that topic as well. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. I can continue to stick around and have conversations with you. But thank you so much for your time, your attention.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture.